Algeciras podcast. The UK and EU have reached an agreement to break the deep stalemate on trade and customs in Northern Ireland. The deal came nearly seven years since Britain voted to leave the European Union. So, is Brexit finally done, or will there be further objections? I'm Sahil Rahman, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our guest for this edition of Inside Story. In London, we have Jill Rutter, a senior research fellow at UK in a changing Europe. She's also a senior fellow at the Institute for Government and Works on Policy and Brexit. In Belfast, Brian Feeney, a historian, author and a columnist with the Irish News. And in Dublin, Dunaka Obakon. Professor at the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University. He's also author of the book From Partition to Brexit, The Irish Government and Northern Ireland. A warm welcome to all of my guests. Mr Feeney, can I come to you first? It seems uh, an intractable problem may well have been solved. It does make you wonder um, why they didn't think of this before. Well, he did think of it before. Um, the problem has been for the last two years, the British government uh, under Boris Johnson and then for a short period Liz Trust have been refusing to operate the protocol and in fact brought in legislation to try to remove the protocol, um, which would have put them in breach of international law. Uh, and the EU had begun infringement proceedings against the British government because of the attitude they'd taken. Mm. So the, the the solution, or what we believe is the solution, was sitting there since about October 2021. But the British government, uh, under its prime minister, uh, was refusing to take it. Uh, when Rishi Sunak came to power, he very quickly decided to um, reset the relationship with the EU. And really... Uh, all the emphasis at the moment is on Northern mm. Ireland and its response. But what this is about is resetting the UK's relationship with the EU. Very much. I'm sure we're going to get more of that in, in the days and weeks ahead. Jill Rutter, can I come in uh, to you in London? Because obviously you've worked on Brexit, you know it inside mm. out from behind the scenes. Was the Northern Ireland issue and trade uh, and the trade barriers and borders always a problem? Was it always in the the mindset of the British government from when the vote was taken back in 2016. What's your take on it? I think it's uh, as a game of two halves, you might say. I think it probably wasn't sufficiently in the mindset either of David Cameron, the prime minister who announced the referendum, nor during the campaign it featured when John Major and Tony Blair, two prime ministers who'd done a lot to bring peace to Northern Ireland, went to Northern Ireland and said, a vote for Brexit could cause problems, but it wasn't a big issue in the campaign. And I think it really only dawned on the British government uh, quite late in the day, into 2017, after they'd set off negotiating the withdrawal agreement, this really was going to be a big problem. And that the EU was very much going to side with the Irish government in demanding a solution up front. Um, but then when the Irish issue, the Northern Irish issue, did take centre stage, it became a huge big issue. It is effectively what caused the downfall of Theresa May when her backstop proposal failed to gain the consent of her Eurosceptic members of uh, Parliament. It triggered the advent of Boris Johnson. He then did this protocol deal, which Rishi Sunak has been trying to make more workable in order to allow the UK 
to exit the EU uh, at the end of uh, in 2020. So it's been a long-running subject and it's been a thorn in UK-EU relations ever since it really <laughs> emerged yeah. as a really difficult issue to solve, this issue of how to avoid a land border in the island of Ireland while protecting the integrity of the EU's single market while also mm. allowing Northern Ireland to remain part of the UK's internal market. Uh, let's get uh, Janaka Obakon's uh, opinion on this in Dublin. Obviously, we'll get into the Good Friday Agreement a little bit later in this conversation, because that's what the whole border issue is about as well. But how do you think Dublin is reacting uh, to the news of the last 24 hours? Because Dublin were very aware that the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic would always be an issue, even before the 2016 referendum and the, and, the, and the way the British government were muting this referendum was going to happen. They were on the ball, weren't they, with the EU, telling them this is going to be a problem. Oh, absolutely. I mean, during the Brexit referendum, the Irish government were acutely aware of the negative ramifications that would arise in what would be a transformational act uh, if, if, if actually the United Kingdom left the European Union. I mean, Ireland and the United Kingdom joined the European Union together. Uh, they'd never been in a situation before where they were one was outside and one was inside. And despite their uh, advice and petitioning of the British government, um, they proceeded without really looking at the implications. They didn't even really decide what kind of Brexit they wanted. It wasn't clear uh, in 2016 whether they would, for example, leave the single market, the customs union. All those things were decided after uh, the decision was made to leave the United Kingdom. And then, of course, it's, it was complicated further by the fact that the majority of people in Northern Ireland voted uh, against Brexit, voted to stay in the European Union. And that's something that's sometimes lost in this debate because the DUP gets such attention uh, because of its opposition uh, to the European Union and indeed to the protocol. And of course, many of the changes that have come about uh, as a result of this agreement have been made to assuage the fears of the DUP. But it's worth remembering that the DUP got 21% of the vote in Northern Ireland during the most recent elections. Uh, Brian Feeney uh, in Belfast. I mean, where do you see the, the process as is at the moment with um, Prime Minister Sunak heading uh, to Northern Ireland in terms of the way that he's got to deal with the unionists now and the, dare I say it, the power that they hold? Is there power that they hold? Well, it's it's very important for, for Rishi Sunak to try to get the DUP on board to get them to support this deal. I mean, it is a good deal and it's a, it's a, a deal that people in Britain and elsewhere said would never happen, that the, the European Union wouldn't agree. Uh, the problem for Rishi Sunak is that if the DUP decide not to go back into the executive in Stormont, um, then people are going to say, well, he did all this for nothing. And the EU is also going to be in the position of saying, well, once again, we've been in negotiations with the British government. We've done all this in good faith. We have stretched ourselves. And at the end of the day, nothing has come of it. Um, so there will be a, a much darker mood in Brussels if the executive isn't up and running again. So Sunak is trying very, very, very hard. In fact, some people would say he's overselling the deal to try to convince the DUP to go back into, into Stormont. Because if there's no executive uh, and there's no local government, devolved government here, um, then the whole place is likely to be destabilised. Uh, Mr O'Bacon in Dublin, you're agreeing, in, uh, you're agreeing with uh, Mr Feeney in, in Belfast. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a, there, there is a lot of frustration. Um, you know, when you think that Brexit was voted upon seven years ago, and, and since that time, we've had five British prime ministers, and the European Union has been negotiating with a British government at war with itself. I mean, it's been the same Conservative Party in government all the time, but such is the factionalism within the Conservative Party that sometimes uh, when a new prime minister comes into power uh, in, in Britain, it's almost like it's a new change of government. Um, you have to remember that the European Union is 27 countries, each of them a democracy, sometimes coalition governments, sometimes they have to take regional uh, governments into account. And they, every time an agreement was signed, you know, more or less stuck to the agreement, but no sooner was an agreement signed before, whether it was with Boris Johnson uh, or with Theresa May, uh, the British government imploded and, and found mm. that it couldn't uh, implement or, or stick with the agreement uh, that it had signed. Indeed, sometimes it was being disowned, as in the case of Boris Johnson. He more or less disowned the agreement that he had signed in 2019, thus the attempts to move away from the protocol. So I think from the European Union's uh, perspective, they're very much hoping um, that this is the beginning of the end uh, because, of course, the relationship will still evolve. I mean, Brexit really hasn't even taken uh, root just yet. I mean, this is just about laying down the framework of what the relationship will be going forward. Now, the, the, the mood music was very good yesterday. Um, there was, Ursula von der Leyen was describing uh, Sunak as dear, dear Rishi. But that, that, that could change very quickly if this agreement is not, not um, followed through Indeed. In, in the United Kingdom. Uh, Mr. Russell, can I bring you in uh, from London? Because, you know, as uh, Donaka said, you know, it's all about the mood and, and the and the murmurings that come, because for Northern Ireland and, and for the, the government in Westminster, um, it has to think about a whole load of things, doesn't it? You know, Northern Ireland's integrity, its relationship with the EU, issues of nationalism and republicanism. Are people, or do they feel they're British, or do they feel that they're Irish? They have to take that into consideration when they're dealing with parties and with the public in Northern Ireland. I mean, from, from your position, dealing with government ministers at that time, what's your opinion about how, the difficult road the government has to now tread to try and make sure this agreement works properly. So I think it's very interesting. I think, actually, I would slightly disagree with your other contributors. I think there are two challenges for Rishi Sunak. One, which I think is the really big one for the EU in many ways, is can he actually get his party to buy this agreement so he doesn't have to go back, try to reopen it, or indeed be pressurised to... Uh, proceed with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, he agreed to drop it. It could always be resurrected. So I think from the EU's point of view is, do they finally have a British government that is prepared to do a deal, can get it through Parliament, uh, manage it politically, and then move to implementation? The second big sort of domestic issue is, can, uh, can he persuade the DUP First of all, to acquiesce in this agreement, they're never going to embrace it with open arms, but will they regard it at some point in the not-too-distant future as providing the basis for resurrecting the power-sharing mm. institution? So I think those are the two tests that he needs to apply. But one of the big problems all along, I think, with the unionist community is, yes, the DUP campaigned for Brexit, other unionist parties didn't campaign for Brexit, but the DUP did, but they never really addressed the issue of how the border would work post-Brexit. I don't think they expected Brexit to win. Most people didn't in the UK establishment. Uh, and they never really had came up with that. And the thinking that was done in Ireland was never really replicated pre-referendum in the UK, but there was definitely a feeling during the Brexit negotiations that the nationalist voice had very good expression through the actions of the government of Ireland, 
and uh, through the European yeah. Union reflecting those concerns, whereas the unionist voice was subjugated, if you like, to the wider concerns of the UK government mm. determined to secure the sort of Brexit it wanted, uh, allowing a hard Brexit with a lot of divergence, and that basically, at the end of the day, uh, when push came to shove, Boris Johnson sacrificed the unionist interest in the interest of the sort of Brexit that he felt he had to deliver mm. for the Conservative Party. Uh, Mr Feeney, can I bring you in, 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 in Belfast? I'm not quite sure whether you were shaking your head in agreement or disagreement there. But also, you know, I just want to bring in that the, the DUP say they're going to look at this agreement and go through it with a fine tooth comb. So, you know, do you want to just come in there with your, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the DUP union's position wasn't subjugated by the British government. The unionists uh, supported the hardest line. In fact, the, the deputy leader in Westminster, Nigel Dodds, uh, was a member of, was on the board of, of Vote Leave. So they wanted a hard border um, and they voted for the hardest Brexit. And they're the authors of their own misfortune. Uh, now they are going to have to take a big decision whether or not to uh, accept this agreement. And, and there's another issue. It isn't just accepting it in the long term. There are local government elections on the 18th of May in Northern Ireland. And the DUP is quite concerned that uh, they may be severely criticised by a hardline party called the Traditional Unionist Voice who are polling at about 7% at the moment. And that means that the DUP, who will lose votes to them, they lost 50,000 votes last year in the Assembly elections to the TUV. They may lose council seats as well. So they have to decide, do they jump before the council elections uh, or do they prevaricate until afterwards and decide to accept if they don't, they're going to be isolated because well, this deal is going to pass yeah. through Westminster. Well, it's going to get a big majority. Well, I mean, it, it, the, the, let me just jump in there, Mr. Feeney, because it is, because it, it, as far as the Labour Party are concerned, they're going to support the government. I know that um, uh, Janak in Dublin is agreeing, but let me just ask you for a very brief answer then from Belfast as you add to this. You talk about elections in May. Uh, uh, your sense on the ground of people in Northern Ireland, they haven't had a, a, a functioning government for some time now. They're seeing politics take the salary but not do the job that they were actually voted in to do. Could this all backfire on the politicians that have actually, you might say, you know, stuck their, their foot in the door and not allowed, not allowed the door to be shut properly on this deal? Yeah, it certainly could backfire. I mean, there is a huge crisis in, in health. There are the longest waiting lists in Britain and Ireland here. Um, there's shortage of money in education. And there's no there's a five hundred million pound black hole um, in the budget in the north of Ireland. And the DUP are being blamed by business for not getting back in. This was before the deal. So there are big decisions for Jeffrey Donaldson to make in the next few days. Um, they're having a meeting on Saturday um, to try to decide what line they will take. Um, but it's, it's okay. a, a matter where he's going to have to decide, do they go in in the short term or in the long term? Um, or do they simply stay out, in which case they're going to be isolated? OK, let me bring in Mr back on it in Dublin. Obviously, you know, you don't just come to these agreements overnight. There's a lot of negotiations, even behind the scenes. And I was wondering, from your take, how much um, input has there been from Dublin through the EU to bring the UK and, and Mr Sunak's ideas to fruition, to, what, to the point that we're at now? 
Well, the Irish government has a vested interest in finding the closest possible relationship between the United Kingdom and, and the European Union. It's certainly in Ireland's interest as the only frontier uh, between the European Union and and uh, the United Kingdom. We are the fault line, uh, as it were. I just wanted to address briefly the point about, about um, the Unionist position not being heard during the negotiations. It's worth remembering that the DUP held the balance of power in Westminster uh, during Theresa May's administration between 2017 and 2019. And indeed, Theresa May had to humiliatingly withdraw from an agreement which he had already entered into because the DUP vetoed it and said it wasn't hard enough from their perspective. So there's no question that the unionist perspective was an integral part of the British government's negotiating position. But as Brian pointed out, um, in a way, they have become the victim of their own success in getting the kind of Brexit that they campaigned for. Um, and it's, it's kind of a utopian Brexit. It's an ideological one. It's not one that serves the interests economically of Northern Ireland and indeed um, what has been tried to happen now with this agreement is to salvage what can be done uh, because of Brexit, which is generally considered to be an act of economic self-harm. There is an opportunity here for Northern Ireland, and Richie Sunak put that point to people in Belfast today, to business people today, because being within the UK single market, being within the EU single market, it does have a privileged position. And uh, Sunak said that it, it, it perhaps was the, the best economic zone in the world. Now, perhaps, okay. again, he's overselling, but he does have a point. Yeah. Uh, well, let me just come back to Jill Rutter, because, you know, we're talking about opportunities here. Uh, in terms of opportunities, you know, some people are saying that Sunak has played a masterstroke here. Even two of his cabinet members who are broad uh, Brexiteers, uh, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, uh, and also uh, one of the ministers, uh, Chris Heaton-Harris and Steve Baker, mm. uh, part of the ERG group, hard wing, right wing part of the Conservative Party that, you know, mm. didn't wanted a hard Brexit. They've actually said this agreement's OK. I'm just wondering about what the status is of the hard right in the Conservative Party, if these two individuals are reflective of the right wing and, and the, the ERG, or whether there's a split in the party there. So one of the big debates is how powerful is the ERG hardline now? We saw it reduced to around 20 people who voted against Theresa May's deal the third time. And people are right. Of course, the DUP uh, misjudged things terribly. They rejected Theresa May's deal, which was trying to help them help reconcile this dilemma. But then they were comprehensively thrown under a bus by Boris Johnson when he signed up to the protocol that they disliked so much. Um, but coming back to this, we don't know yet. It's clearly a huge win for Rishi Sunak that he's managed this through with no resignations from his cabinet. Quite a lot of people were on resignation watch that Steve Baker and Chris Heaton-Harris have supported the deal. And yesterday in Parliament was a very, very different mood to earlier discussions on Brexit we've heard. Um, when Theresa May presented her backstop to Parliament, it took well over an hour, I think, before any other Conservative but, uh, spoke in favour of it. Yesterday, quite a lot of people who've been big figures in the Vote Leave campaign were lauding Rishi Sunak for the deal that he has landed. That said, the sort of ERG ultras uh, have said that they want to take time to study the deal. They're mm. convening what they call their star chamber of lawyers to go through the massive documents that were published yesterday with a fine tooth comb. Okay. And they will find things in it they don't like. They will find that the Prime Minister has slightly oversold some of the gains. Uh, and if you don't want a deal, then you will find reasons not to like this deal. But if you think that basically you only get a good, solid relationship with the EU going forward and bring stability to North Ireland by having some sort of negotiated settlement, um, then you probably reckon that this is pretty where 
pretty well as good as it's going to get. Well, let me jump in there with, to Brian Feeney in, Dublin, in Belfast because we're coming very close to the end of the programme because I did mention we talk about this soft and hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And, of course, the Good Friday Agreement revolves around... Uh, predominantly the border between the North uh, and the South. And President Biden has always said that the Good Friday Agreement is untouchable. You have to keep it in place. And Rishi Sunak knows if he can agree with all the parties involved that they can have a workable solution to the uh, intractable, intractable problem of Northern Ireland, it could open the door to Washington and that trade deal that Sunak would like with the United States. I was wondering whether this is the opportunity that Sunak is looking for, the, the long-term vision, and that would help Northern Ireland as well. Um, well, yes, this really is about um, resetting the uh, UK, EU and UK, US relations. Uh, Joe Biden has already uh, endorsed this agreement. Uh, Rishi Sunak, in fact, promised Joe Biden at the G7 summit in Bali in November that he would have a deal before uh, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, which is coming up in April. So th uh, it's, it's more than just about Northern Ireland. And it was interesting uh, yesterday that uh, Ursula von der Leyen uh, immediately offered the UK access to the EU's Horizon programme for research and innovation, which is 95.5 billion euro over the next five years. So, as I say, it's it's important that this gets up and running, mm. but it's about the EU and UK and US relationship being reset after two or three really bad years. We shall see how quickly that all does get reset. Unfortunately, there we have to leave it. I'd like to thank all of my guests, Jill Wetter, Brian Feeney and Donaka Obak. And thank you so much for joining us on this edition of Inside Story. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Laura Khan, Mohamed Salman, Fungi Nguyen and Jimmy Gettahan. Studio sound was by Renjith Kurian and the programme was edited by Mohamed Shobi, Lin Nguyen and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next Inside Story.